HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed on to the plan, like Nam Wa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Hey there, welcome to the Feed Feed, where we sit down with leaders and upstarts of the food media realm to discuss everything from navigating social media, building, engaging with, and growing a community, and producing content that resonates with young and old. I'm Jay Cohen, Editorial Director of the Feed Feed, the world's largest crowdsourced food publication and social media community, serving as your daily source of what to cook, bake, and drink. Today, to end this incredible first season of the Feed Feed podcast, I am in conversation with Julie and Dan Resnick, co-founders of the Feed Feed. Um, obviously, these are the people that built up this incredible brand I get to work for, and we're going to kind of chat about how Feed Feed got to where it is today. Thanks so much for joining. Nice to be here. Thanks, Jake. Thank so, you. To kind of start it off, and this is something that I think is such a difference of Feed Feed versus pretty much uh, any other food media brand. I mean, there are many things that do that, but uh, is the fact that I was an active member of the Feed Feed community before I ever worked for the company. And that was kind of a key part of the reason why I wanted to join the team. Um, And I kind of want to just start talking about community, talking about how Feed Feed began and what was the idea behind it. Okay, great. Um, So I guess we'll talk a little bit about how we started the company and why we started the company. Um, It wasn't really intentional or, um, you know, planned out, mapped out from the beginning. Really, it was just a change in my personal lifestyle, our lifestyle. We moved out of the city out to the Hamptons, to Amagansett, 
And my personal approach to cooking really shifted once we moved out there. Um, when we were in the city, you know, I shopped at the green markets. I went to Whole Foods. We had two little kids. You know, I made all of their baby food. I um, would I participated in this um, kind of farm share where you could get raw milk, and I would go to these random locations in New York to pick up illegal raw milk. <laughs> And, you know, gave that to my daughters when they were little. Um, but when we got out to Amagansett, we, it was the first time where we were in a rural environment and we became really well connected to the farmers. Actually, the first thing that I did um, before we moved out is uh, I found um, Quejo Farm online, or we kind of knew about it a little bit beforehand. And we, we purchased uh, a share in their community-supported agriculture program. And that is something that, you know, thinking back was sort of like a really important um, moment for us because that sort of led to our approach to food quite a bit. And so when you join a CSA, basically what they say is, you know, you, you know, pay your six, seven, eight hundred dollars, whatever it is for the full season. And, you know, you hope for the best. You get what the farm produces. So if it's a great year with tomatoes, you know, you're going to get a lot of tomatoes and make a lot of tomato sauce and tomato soup. Um, and, you know, if it's a bad year, you know, actually our second year there, we were excited because the first year the tomatoes were amazing. And the second year they got this tomato blight and the entire crop was just destroyed and, you know, inedible. Um, and it was really disappointing, but you realize that, you know, farming is a risk and the farmers don't know what the yield is going to um, come each year. So anyway, the approach to cooking really changed because we were getting food from the farm year round. In the winter, they have winter shares out there and you're getting sweet potatoes and parsnips and turnips and rutabagas and squash and squash and squash and squash. And, <laughs> and so really at the beginning, um, we noticed on Instagram that, you know, farmers and other people who were kind of cooking from what they had available were posting a lot of cool recipes. And like, you know, I would look on some of my favorite sites online and, you know, search sweet potatoes and it was pretty basic, you know, um, I think also really that farm to table movement back at that time hadn't fully, fully taken off. So there's a lot more inventive vegetable dishes these days that a lot of the other food brands are leaning into. But, um, you know, uh, sweet potato fries was sort of like, you know, what I was seeing out there. And I kept thinking like, oh, that's interesting, because if I find this farmer, she's making some really interesting you know, I don't know, maybe it was like spiralized sweet potatoes into sweet potato noodles before anyone was really spiralizing anything. And finding those people on Instagram and commenting on their posts and liking their posts and making their dishes, you know. So we just set up our Instagram account, The Feed Feed, and the beginning was really just me cooking and Dan shooting and the kids waiting probably <laughs> one to two hours for their dinner as it was like, you know, getting cold. And we're like, one more second, guys. You know, and they were little. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, 
very quickly finding a lot of other people and they weren't all just farmers, you know, a lot of vegetarians, um, you know, and then also some of the early adopters to Instagram, you know, bloggers who, you know, got onto the platform early or even just people who didn't have a blog. I think at the beginning too, I mean, it was really about just inspiration, you know? Um, I mean, even something last weekend, you know, we had just come back from, um, a farm here in Los Angeles where we picked up a, a ton of produce and I was scrolling through the feed feed on Sunday and I saw someone made broccoli cheese soup and I hadn't made that in years. And I was like, Oh, I'm going to make that for dinner tonight. I have broccoli and you know, um, I still use Instagram in that same way, just getting inspiration for what to, you know, cook for dinner or what to bake. And that sort of, um, concept I think was really important for us. It, you know, we really had no desire to sort of reinvent uh, the concept of a food publication. We were really honing in on building a community around inspiring each other on what to cook, bake, eat, drink, primarily seasonally, um, but doing so in a platform that allowed for really quick discovery and inspiration. And, you know, recipes, while they're a big part of what we do now, initially it was really just an image with a particular aesthetic that we honed in on. And also, you know, just an idea around something creative with, um, you know, a product or a vegetable or meat or a fish that, um, you know, an idea that was creative and not ordinary. And so I would say that, like, you know, we could only put out as much content as we could put out. Um, you know, Dan was working full time as a radiologist then he would come home from work and I would sort of have the dinner ready. And then, you know, we would quickly shoot something, you know, before we lost light or maybe we lost light and we were using, you know, a pretty subpar tabletop light at that time. And then that's when we really leaned into the community and said, oh, well, people are sharing because we, we did have this hashtag. I mean, it was Dan's idea from the beginning, like, oh, why don't we ask other people to use this hashtag, hashtag feed feed, and then we can all share what we're making and then you can get ideas from them and like you can make her pizza or his, you know, barbecue chicken um, and then let them know and, you know, it'll be on the hashtag. So as people were starting to post really amazing stuff, you know, and the photography was beautiful, we started resharing some of our favorites. Initially, you know, just dishes that I was making at home and, you know, had sort of vetted in that way. Like, oh, I just made your, I remember one of the early ones was this like pear and blue cheese pizza from this woman who was in, I think, Austria or was she in Denmark? I'm, I'm forgetting. Anyway. Her, her account name, actually, I do remember it. Dia Donna. Oh, yeah. Dia Donna. Right. So, um, yeah, it was just like, oh, I never thought of that. Like pear and blue cheese pizza. Um, anyway. So, so it, it actually, that, that's sort of a good segue to how it started, where we identified individuals who are doing creative things. And then basically, one by one, just started forming relationships, getting to know them, finding a way to provide them value since they were providing their content, which we would ask permission for each time. And, you know, it started with a list of 10, 20, 100 content creators. And then we started realizing that there were thousands and, you know, really hundreds of thousands of people that were, you know, cooking amazing things, taking, you know, really amazing photography, which, you know, was really aided by the fact that 
mobile phone photography became a thing. And, and that's sort of where like the, the focus on community became central for us. And what was growth like at this point? Cause this was, you, you really started, um, at the beginning of this wave of Instagram as kind of social media transformed from like statuses and Facebook and short kind of punchy clickbait text to being very visual and image driven. What was like, how fast did you kind of see followers coming in, people using the hashtag, et cetera? I mean, people were using the hashtag from the very beginning. That really resonated with people. Um, followers, you know, it a- wasn't it wasn't just overnight. You know, we didn't just like grow substantially from the beginning to the middle to now. Gaining followers is hard. You know, it takes a lot of time and energy and effort um, on your phone, engaging. Um, getting to know people, you know, making real connections, I think, and commenting on posts and, um, you know, now it's like DMing and, and all of that. But I mean, there were really, there's really, there were no shortcuts. I mean, the, the, the process then and now, as, as you know, Jake, um, is very manual. It's, it's actually about creating relationships. So, you know, in the first year, while the hashtag grew, you know, pretty quickly, you know, I don't remember exactly, you know, because we weren't tracking it in the same way we were the account, but the account only grew to about a thousand followers after a year of, of you know, really Julie, Julie doing it full time and me doing it, you know, let's say half time. But um, then after the first year, it did grow to a hundred thousand. So from a, a thousand to a hundred thousand in year two. Um, but, you know, you know, it's been six years now and, and kind of like what Julie said, it's, it, there's really no shortcuts. It's, it's all about real connections, providing real value for people and um, really gaining their trust and, and deserving, you know, them to then entrust you with their content. Um, there's really no, you know, I guess there were some shortcuts that some people used, you know, in the beginning where, where you know, you could purchase followers or things like that. But that was something that we never you know, really considered. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, for us, the, the growth was always related to something authentic and something real we were doing or providing for other people. I mean, and there and now, were at least some like collaborations or like times when I remember actually it was a, I did that fried oyster pizza with the microgreens, you remember, and Goop reposted it. And, you know, we got like, I don't know, thousands of followers, you know, in, in a day. And and there were definitely some times like that. I mean, we had the some BuzzFeed. other, yeah, like BuzzFeed would post and, you know, would get a couple thousand followers. Um, you but, know, and there was a time in Instagram, again, I don't I think yeah. on, on autopilot, but it was like, you know, we were averaging more followers on the main account per day than, you know, we might be getting these days, but that still required having our heads in the phone and, you know, spending a lot of time, um, liking and comment and following. I mean, I think following, there was this time in Instagram where I noticed like people stopped following and they like unfollowed all of these people and they wanted to have like 
a really small number of people that they followed compared to how many people were following them. And we always thought that was kind of stupid. I mean, why not follow as many people as you think are putting out good content? Um, So, you know, we're not afraid to follow anyone who is making great food and inspiring us. Um, So, you know, as you know, we continue to follow people um, as we come across their accounts. Uh, one of my favorite things to kind of discuss, and this came up with uh, Dead Perlman has been in Kitchen and Chell Sweets and um, a lot of these content creators that were doing other things. Obviously, Dan's a doctor. Um, the idea of what was the choice like, the mindset like to make the kind of jump from this being a side project to all in, this is what we're doing. I mean, it was a little bit of a collision of, of um, personal histories in the sense that um, I was born in the Ukraine. My family, uh, met multiple people in my family were computer programmers. We um, had relationships with a development company in the Ukraine. Julie went to culinary school. I was a photographer sort of outside of what I was doing in medicine. Um, and then we had a lot of creative friends that we bounce these, you know, some of our ideas off of. And um, in fact, our friends named the company. Um, Maris, who's our designer, her husband. Um, I never do that. I love that. Yeah. So he's from New Zealand. And when you go out to eat, you say like, let's go for a feed. And at the beginning, I think one of the names that I was like bouncing around was like food feed or something like that. And he was like, no, it should be feed feed. And I was like, well, Americans feel like feed is like bird feed. Yeah. Or like yeah. what you, you know, feed animals like, you, yeah, know, yeah, yeah. Cattle, you know, like corn and anyway. And he was like, no. And and then we, you know, we really liked, we actually, we, we, at the very beginning, we kind of were like, oh, we're not sold on it. And then Maris actually designed the logo and sent it to us and was like, here, look how good it looks. So, um, you know, and that's when, you know, we kind of leaned into the name. Um, But yeah, I mean, in terms of when Dan decided to like stop medicine and go full time with Feed Feed, I mean, it was several years in, I think my background in, um, you know, digital agencies, and then also culinary school, I mean, from the beginning, I, you know, I did say to myself, if I'm going to be sitting here all day, and you know, working on this brand and building this community, I would like to make money. Um, we didn't go after investment. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate that I knew how to go after brands and talk to them and understand, you know, what their marketing ob- objectives were and, you know, help figure out campaigns or strategies to help them meet those objectives, um, you know, versus you know, having to go after investment. And, and like Dan said, with the, with the Ukrainian development team, I mean, we've talked a lot about Instagram, but our website, you know, became very important to us early on as a place to store some of our favorite content that had been shared with us. Um, you know, and, and we can talk about that, um, when we get into the verticals, um, in a couple of minutes, but, you know, it wasn't like we had this moment where um, we decided, you know, 
we were ready to, I mean, over time we were able to bring in some revenue and with that, you know, we would make a higher, um, you know, in terms of like having Molly um, come on to help me with really reviewing content on the hashtag. I mean, that was, that was so exciting every day to sort of like wake up and look at the hashtag and see how many hundreds or thousands of posts would be added overnight. But then there was always this overwhelming feeling of, oh my gosh, there are all these people and they're sharing their great content and there aren't enough hours in the day to get through and look at every single one. And like Molly and I both had this like personal um, goal each day of like, we have to get through all of it because they put their energy and their hard work into this post and they added our hashtag. So, you know, we have to look at it and decide what we're going to do with that piece of content. Um, but very quickly realizing that that wasn't realistic. Um, and that's why, you know, you talked at the beginning about being part of the community. That was why we went out to people who are experts in something that we're not really experts in. Like a good example of that would be like, I don't know, fermented foods. It's like, yeah, you know, I love um, kimchi, but I don't make it that often, you know, and, you know, there are people and bloggers and your Instagrammers that are making, you know, kimchi all the time. And so why not have someone who knows everything there is to know about kimchi be the editor of a kimchi feed on our website? Um, or even brownies. It's like, yeah, I love brownies and I have kids and we make brownies a couple times a year, but there are people out there that make brownies all the time. So they're brownie experts as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm so a we, brownie expert. Yeah. <laughs> so we ask people to, you know, come on and become the editor of these feeds on our website. And so not only were we crowdsourcing most of our content, but then we were allowing the crowd to help curate the best of that and leaning into people's expertise to do that. And I think that's, you know, obviously a difference um, between the two. But as, as a long, long way back around to your initial question, I, I think the I personally was partially empowered to, to make that shift in my own life or career because we were seeing a lot of individuals around us in relation to feed feed that were changing, you know, their careers as well. People that were, you know, doing food blogs on the side or having a food Instagram account on the side and then um, engaging with us. And, and suddenly they were full time and, and doing that as their career. And it sort of was in parallel. Like we, we watched individuals grow into that. And then, you know, we grew into that, um, simultaneously. And then as we started monetizing, we started hiring those same individuals to do campaigns with brands. Um, so it was sort of, you know, we were a part of a movement that, you know, we didn't create. We, we sort of were able to fortunately be a part of it um, somewhat early on. Um, one thing that I want to touch upon, because for a lot of people, um, when I explain feed feed, they think of it obviously as a hashtag, an Instagram account, but the the true excitement is when they learn about how we work as a company with the website um, and the feeds and the concept of a community-run publication that is 
kind of not only lifting up individual voices. I know we always talk about the fact that like feed feed is a democratization of food media, but when did that come into play in terms of the website, in terms of the feeds, in terms of this huge um, list of editors, since we have so many from around the world, each dedicated to like you said, Julie, brownies or fermented foods, et cetera. I mean, it, I, I think it came in the very beginning, kind of what Julie said is, is that as much as she went to culinary school and um, knew what she was doing in the kitchen and, and I didn't for that matter. Um, we, the, the moment we found someone that was doing something interesting in our minds, we assigned them as experts. Like there, there was, there's really no ego, which is good when, when you're coming into something that isn't, you know, is something new and not something that, that you've done your whole life. Um, our approach was always to, you know, assign other people as experts, not to be the, the voice of a brand, but to let other people sort of direct where Feed Feed went. And it, that, that approach was sort of from the very beginning. And what was really helpful, I mean, you talk about growth, you know, sort of in retrospect, you know, someone could say, oh, that was, you know, a really smart move to enlist these community members who were sharing their content and asking them to curate these feeds. Um, you know, we were, we did it because we needed help to get through the hashtag and find the best posts. Um, but what was amazing is that the minute we started asking people, Hey, do you want to become the editor? I mean, I remember like asking Judy Kim because she used to post a smoothie every morning and I said, hey, you should be our smoothie editor because, you you know, you're making these smoothies every day and they're delicious and you're including some really interesting ingredients, um, you know. And, you know, she said, of course. And, you know, people started adding to their Instagram profile editor at the feed feed. And that was really an amazing moment for us because, um, you know, I would come across, you know, someone's account, you know, maybe a year into it. And, and Molly had sort of taken on the role of kind of community manager at that time. And so most of the time she would ask me, oh, do you think we should let this person become the editor of, you know, I don't know, the layered cake feed. Um, but there were times when, you know, she was, I gave her obviously the ability to enlist someone as an editor without running it by me. And I would come across someone's account and I'd say, oh, this is an amazing account. And then I'd look in their profile and I'd say, oh my gosh, they're the editor of our oranges feed. Like, that's awesome. Like, and, um, you know, little things, you know, that changes in Instagram. I don't know if you remember, Jake, when like the bio, you would put a handle in there and at the beginning it wasn't clickable and then it became So like, you know, that was awesome because we'd have hundreds of people on Instagram mentioning that they were the editor of one of our feeds. And then all of a sudden the bot that our name was clickable. And that was just another way to, um, you know, get people to come back to our page and, and follow us from there. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, the, the answer to, I guess, your main question about like, where did the feeds come from? And and the concept of the website and having different topics. I mean, that was from the beginning kind of partly Julie's approach to cooking. Uh, Yeah. Kind of like I said, with the sweet potatoes, it was like, well, I don't want to just know like the, you know, mashed sweet potatoes or, you know, 
I don't know, sweet potato pie or whatever the, you know, the, the five top recipes that Google SEO was telling all the other major publications, they should be putting out content for sweet potatoes around these five recipes. And that's what they were investing their dollars yeah. in. I mean, we were more interested in, just, in seeing what someone from Iceland was doing with sweet potatoes because they all they had is sweet potatoes maybe for three months as opposed to what yeah, Google and, was and, saying. And also, um, I didn't care how many posts. You know, I, I wanted as many sweet potato ideas that were good that someone might find interesting added to our website, um, you know, so that we would have this amazing repository of sweet potato recipes bigger than any other collection of sweet potato recipes out there. And so that was why we started organizing the website into what we call feeds, um, you know, that are topical or ingredient based. And when did the verticals come into play? When we're talking about the verticals, it's because we have obviously at the feed feed, but we have Everything from feedfeed.vegan, gluten-free, baking, chocolate, cocktails, recipe videos. How did you guys figure out what were the segments to focus on? And then when did you start kind of building them up? I mean, honestly, we, you know, we stopped at those eight or nine accounts. But if it was up to us, we'd have, you know, hundreds. Uh, it's just a little bit of a bear to manage. But um, that was really, you know... In a re as a reaction to having a platform like Instagram and other social networks that allowed for, you know, individuals and brands to really go down rabbit holes and find um, content that was very specific and communities that were very specific around a specific topic. So we recognized, you know, obviously the, the vegan community was um, very eager to to have content that spoke to what they were looking for and uh same with gluten-free and you know there's a lot of people that love chocolate and a lot of people that love baking and that's all not it's not that that's all they want to uh see or get inspired with but i i think the concept of, of having a community with a very like-minded singular focus is where you know the company started so then why not why not dive into niches um when there's platforms that allow you to do so and we rolled them out one by one. They didn't all come at the same time. So we had at the feed feed, of course, first, and vegan was the second one. And that, I mean, the vegan community had actually been asking us for that account for a long time. Every maybe 10th or 12th post we posted sort of back in the early days would be a vegan post and they would perform really, really well. Um, and I think hashtags also, we haven't really talked, we've talked about hashtag feed feed, but hashtags on Instagram in the early days, I think really did make a difference. Um, I'm sure they still do. And we obviously still use relevant hashtags on all of our posts. But I, you know, just remember, you know, going down the vegan hashtag rabbit hole and, you know, plant based and um, clean eating, you know, all of the vegan hashtags. And just finding some amazing accounts. And also, you know, like I said before, we followed people from our main account. But, you know, once you're trying to curate a group of amazing content creators that are posting around a niche topic um, or cuisine, you kind of want to group them together. So I think that was the other thing was that for us to pull, to have the vegan account isn't just 
a place for us to put out good vegan content, but it's a place for us to curate a list of vegan community members. And those are the people that we follow from our vegan account. But I mean, I think it's all part of, you know, where society and, and digital and social content was going or is going or has gone in the past five, 10 years, which is the ability to create communities around very specific interests. Um, and that's sort of what we, you know, leaned into. And, and I mean, if it was up to us, we'd have uh, company, you know, a company structure where, you know, s- chunks of the company would be devoted just to specific interests and, and vertical. And as we kind of, because like that is at its core, kind of a huge way of how we think because feed feed itself has become this ecosystem where the accounts are interacting with each other. Content is going back and forth. Um, what did that look like as kind of Instagram has shifted over the past five years to make kind of our current stance of where we are um, exist? Like did things just continue as you planned? Were there changes like Julie said in terms of like Instagram's function or offerings that have kind of helped us grow or dictate, or is it just truly always been about kind of putting out this content and continuing to support community? Yeah. I mean, every feature that Instagram has rolled out, you know, from when we used to just have square posts, right? And then it went to, you know, a rectangular post. Oh my God. I totally forgot about that. Right. I remember. There were no videos. I mean, so the day that Instagram started allowing people to post videos, that was huge, right? So, I mean, then DMs, you know, like DMs and all of the DM features, you know, uh, live, everything that Instagram. IGTV, IG stories. So, I mean, yeah, stories, right. I mean, you know, we were, we had... And Snapchat as well and, and TikTok now. So, I mean, we're, you know, partly where we started was to build community, but then to get the community's voice out to audiences, you know, we religiously followed the changes that social platforms brought, you know, launched and, and then found ways to create content that, that leveraged those features. And because, you know, we are still primarily crowdsourced, we can do that quickly, right? So, you know, someone who creates videos and the day that Instagram launches videos and then people are posting videos, we already have this collection of content creators. We're following them. We're going through our feed. We're seeing who the best video um, content creators are. You know, we're contacting them right away and saying, we love what you're doing. You know, can we start posting that? Um, Again, you know, being self-funded and, you know, monitoring changes and trends and being able to adapt and pivot very quickly, I think has allowed us to continue to grow and continue to evolve and continue to, to resonate with, um, you know, audiences as what they want, you know, whether it's on Instagram or the web or, um, on TikTok, it's, you know, People evolve and their needs uh, evolve and the kind of content that they engage with evolves. If we were to take a photo that, 
you know, got 20,000 likes two or three years ago and post it today, I don't know if it would get 20,000 likes. You know, there, there are trends and, um, you know, people are in a certain mindset, you know, at a given time period and, and, and they evolve and shift. And so, you know, you always have to be looking at what's currently resonating and why. I mean, I think one thing that we definitely tried not to do is, you know, from the beginning, I mean, there would be times when Dan would show me a photo and I would say, yeah, that's beautiful, but I don't like the ingredients. Like I don't, I wouldn't make that. Like that's, it it has to be as much about how it looks as what's in it, you know, and is that something that we would stand behind and make, um, you know, and serve to our kids or, you know, if, you know, same with Molly, I mean, we would look at the recipes and just say, that's beautiful, but it's just not, we're not going to post that. Um, so anyway, you know, we've definitely evolved as these platforms have evolved and put out content that is kind of timely and, you know, we can, we can take chances and risks and see, you know, what works and what doesn't, and then learn from that and, you know, and then develop our own content strategies around what we see working. I mean, and you know that better than anyone as you're digging into insights all the time. And now I think this is kind of the the perfect segue because we've kind of really dug into content and how we function. And then I think to kind of play off the fact of feed feed is self-funded and has a business model completely different than any other food media brand, maybe not now, but at least when you guys began. Um, the idea from my background in print and digital media that was so kind of rooted in either in print media, obviously circulation of how many people have subscriptions and then in digital, all about clicks to the website. Um, Instagram was this platform that kind of cut all of that out, especially at the beginning because it was before you could have a, a link in your bio or a um, story with a swipe up. What was kind of that process like of creating these campaigns with brands when even now today, like a lot of the stuff that we are offering and kind of partnering with brands on are products that aren't really prevalent in the market. Yeah. I mean, our, our approach has been, to be really careful and humble about um, having two goals, right? Like, you know, you, we have a community, a publication, but at the same time, you know, to, to keep it running, um, we need to have a business model. So the way we, we, you know, I wouldn't say it was intentional, but now it's intentional. The way we go about it is anything we offer a brand is something that we've developed that brings value to a community. So, you know, whether it's events or, um, the content we create for brands, all of that came out of something that um, had authentic value that we would feel comfortable putting out there organically. Um, and then, you know, we found very quickly that brands wanted access to that in an authentic way. Um, and that's sort of where our products, whether that's events or, you know, influencer campaigns or trips or uh, social contests, um, video work, all the things we do that that make the company money have 
always the 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 goal of also um, being valuable content and and growing the community and and that seems to be a, a nice formula because um, we work you know almost exclusively only with brands that we you know believe in and then the things that we do with them are things that you know we hope that our community um, gets value from. I think that that is it's been such a refreshing kind of change from the typical landscape when you think of advertising as like a banner ad or something that is completely dictated by kind of what a brand wants to be viewed as versus kind of seeing it in action. How has that process been in the sense of, I kind of think, I mean, we talk about this all the time in the sense of, a brand will only kind of work with if it is a product that we would kind of authentically use, which is honestly the case of everything. When I think of the shipments we're even getting to our home right now, as we're all working from home and getting oil deliveries, et cetera. Um, was that difficult starting off in the sense of you look at the influencer landscape and that kind of delicate balance of wanting to take work to for either expansion and or making sure you're delicate with brand voice. So what was kind of been the mentality throughout this process of what partners to take on? The mentality has always been, do I like their products? Do I already cook with their products? Like, I mean, in the beginning, I actually just opened my pantry and refrigerator and then I DM'd the brands that I was buying every week and feeding our family. Um, So there are a lot of really good food brands. So if we're talking about the endemics, right, like food brands, um, you know, if anyone listening has ever been to something like Expo West where you are, you know, in Anaheim and you're walking the convention center and there are floors and floors and floors of natural food brands out there. Um, no, they don't all have a lot of money, um, you know, but some of them, you know, have money to spend. And, you know, they're, they're, people, consumers have become more careful about what they're putting into their bodies, right? They are turning around and reading the labels and, you know, finding out more about the brand and how they grow their food or how they treat their animals. And so, um, you know, we're here to help the brands that are making a difference in the food system and, you know, have a mission that we believe in, you know, we're here to help promote them and make people understand. I mean, I think Hanson Brook Farm is a good example of that. Um, with organic pasture-raised eggs. They're more expensive than the other eggs at the grocery store. And there's a reason that they're more expensive. And so as long as we can explain that to our audience, um, and, you know, for me too, it's about the taste, right? It's like um, Hansenbrook eggs taste great. Simply Organic, another brand that we work with, their spices um, are really flavor forward and it is about the organic growing practices. And we know that because we've sent, you know, two of our team members to India 
to walk the fields with these farmers and understand um, how the way they care for their land and grow the spices makes them so potent. So, you know, as long as our advertising is coming from a place of understanding why these brands are different and how we can communicate that to our audience and develop recipes that are approachable uh, with their products, I think everyone wins. Um, but it's hard work, you know, as you know, because you're often tasked with creating those recipes. And, um, you know, I think for us, you know, as people who love food, who love to cook, you know, it, it, it's fun to work with good products, right? And, you know, I, I'm, I hope that, you know, when you're developing a recipe, whether it's an editorial recipe or a sponsored recipe, there's really no difference because if you're going to make an olive oil cake, you know, why not use one of the best olive oils out there, um, you know, and, and explain to the audience why it imparts such an amazing flavor into the cake. Um, but I don't know, maybe you want to weigh in on that too, Jake. I mean, I think that you, you said it completely right. I think the kind of balance of, kind of using these products that we would already be using. I mean, I just think about my history with Feed Feed and the first interactions that I remember were the kind of giveaway um, contests to get a Le Creuset Dutch oven. Right. And I was like, I was an intern at Severn Magazine. I couldn't afford a Le Creuset Dutch oven. And here was this media brand that was kind of offering it and working with such an iconic um, brand like Le Creuset. So hundred percent. I mean, I think the idea is I just want to make olive oil cake, which is funny because we just put out an olive oil cake last night, um, that people are already making and to have someone to help make that happen organically is obviously wonderful. And, you know, the, it, it, it's not black and white also, as far as, you know, how to work with brands, you know, how to select brands. I mean, it, we try to be humble and and not pretentious and um, sort of take a step back and realize, you know, some brands are very naturally, um, you know, they're stars, right. In the current landscape, they, they started recently, they're mission based, they're doing amazing things for the environment in conjunction with creating a great product and other brands have been around for a while and they're, they're changing their practices incrementally and, and maybe they're bigger, and older, but, but their scale might allow them to make a difference in the food system as well. So we, we try to sort of understand that there's kind of a, a time and a place um, for a lot of different brands to, to sort of have a positive role in, in sort of what we eat and drink um, these days. And, you know, for example, like something that's a little bit more processed and I don't want to sort of get into like putting more or less value on specific brand names. But, you know, if something's a little bit more processed, uh, there still might be a time and a place for it where, you know, a busy mom or dad, um, they're able to sort of put a a great meal together because something is a little bit more prepared rather than having to do it from scratch. So, you know, we, we try to kind of balance sort of, you know, the greater mission of like the food system being perfect versus sort of reality and, and people's sort of needs in their daily lives. And, you know, obviously, um, not everyone's perfect and not everyone's beyond reproach, including feed feed. And, um, we just try to do our best at kind of balancing, um, 
sort of the big picture. And now, obviously, we, we've gotten to this place far beyond just the two of you and, and Amagan said. We have a much larger team of editors, both on staff and obviously the larger community. We have test kitchens in both Brooklyn and LA. Was this part of the plan? Is this just kind of how we've evolved? What is, is kind of been that kind of approach? And then what's next? Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, the thinking behind, um, I mean, it started, you know, obviously with Brooklyn, um, you know, long before we had the physical space, the team of us um, were working, you know, in and around New York City. And we were hosting events, not just in New York, but all over the country. Um, And even, you know, in other countries. So, you know, New York City event spaces are expensive and offices are expensive. And so at the beginning, you know, the practical choice for us was, well, let's find a space that can double as an office and a test kitchen and an event space. Um, And, you know, that, you know, took us a little while to find the right Spot. And, you know, we're really happy to be in Bushwick. Um, and we, LA. Yeah. We, you know, and, and we kind of took that same approach, you know, with Los Angeles. We were coming out here a lot. We were hosting a lot of events on the West Coast. Um, the LA community, similar to the New York community, um, is really, really strong. And, you know, there are a lot of amazing content creators and influencers and just general community members in both cities. Um, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, like we said, I think at the beginning, we, we have never really mapped everything out for Feed Feed. We've sort of taken everything day by day and week by week and month by month. We do look at what is working, what is resonating. And like Dan said, what provides value to our community. So, you know, in the very beginning of our events, they were just community meetups. And every time we would like go on vacation somewhere, we would just DM the people that we knew from Instagram in those cities and say like, Hey, we're in San Francisco. Uh, we're going to have a community meetup at this location. Dan and I are going to be there and, you know, we'll have some food or drink. And, you know, it was amazing. You know, like, 50, 75, I don't know, 100 people would show up at these various locations and we'd just get to know people and actually help them to forge better relationships in real life with people that we knew they were connecting with through feed feed on social media. I mean, a lot of people, you know, will tell me like, oh, I met her in real life after you posted her and I started following her. And then we both realized that we were from the same, I don't know, small town or, you know, we, you know, know the same person from college or, you know, we both love, I don't know, tiramisu, you know, it, it, it's a, it's funny how many people we've been able to connect, um, not just with feed feed, but, you know, can it make connections, um, through social and in real life. And so the events sort of division of feed feed took off after we realized how powerful it was to get people 
you know, out and together and, you know, enjoying food or drink, which is something, of course, that we all love to do, right? Um, you know, get together with friends and family and, um, you know, whether it's going out to restaurants or um, hosting events in our homes. So, you know, we just, we realized how powerful that was to bring like-minded people together outside of social media. And um, it's been amazing. But I, I think, you know, in answer to your question about, you know, what's next, yeah, as Julie said, we try not to plan out too far because I think that's sort of a, um, a, a bit of a mistake for a company like ours. We, we try to instead just stay really nimble and pivot when we notice something that, that the community really wants or the, or the social platforms sort of um, lean into themselves. So, you know, if, an, if, if a new format comes out, that's sort of, uh, and we see that it's something that people are going to engage with, that's where we then shift in, you know, our resources towards. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, right now when we're thinking about what's really important, I mean, um, we're making a lot of effort as we always have on Instagram. I think TikTok is a, is a really interesting platform for us as, as you know, Jake, um, I think just hit 600,000. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it's exciting to grow quickly on a new platform, but it's also exciting to, um, you know, use the, the resources it provides or the formats it, it, it provides to, to reach people in different ways. So, you know, TikTok is something that's very interesting for us. I mean, Live broadcast in general, you know, we're leaning into quite a bit right now. Um, and then, you know, lo- locations, you know, right now it's just New York and L.A., um, but it could be other cities, um, you know, and, and locations for us are really just places for uh, our community to sort of meet and connect. Um, and that's sort of been why we've, we've thought that was really valuable to us. Um what do you think, Jake? What 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 do you want us to focus on? I mean, I think I think you, you kind of touched on it pretty clearly in the sense of uh, adapt. Um, I think for many food brands, as someone who has worked for publications that have downsized or become completely obsolete, it always comes down to evolve or die, uh, and that's been the fun part about feed feed is I think the ability to pivot. Um, super quickly and even everything from jumping on a platform. When I talk to a lot of my friends in the industry um, who are editors at other very large, very successful publications, they tell me immediately the red tape that they're going through in order to post one TikTok or even open an account. And it is going to, I just know inherently it will be the roadblock between that publication and their ability to kind of grow organically in social media. Um, So I think that's a huge difference of ours. And the concept of voices has always been very, very intriguing. And the fact that we are the first publication that has really stepped away from the old school mentality of a publication is this living entity that people respect and use and instead it's going into these individual content creators as these pillars of authority in a specific subject um so i I don't think as long as we we continue doing that it's it's always going to be in the right direction no matter what platform yeah exactly 
During this time, it's more important than ever to support our friends and neighbors in the restaurant industry. Restaurant Workers Community Foundation has set up a national COVID-19 crisis relief fund. The money they raise will provide direct relief to individual restaurant workers, support other nonprofits serving restaurant workers in crisis, and offer zero-interest loans for restaurants to get back up and running. Visit restaurantworkerscf.org to donate today. And if you need a little extra motivation, you can DM your $20 donation to RWCF's co-founder, John DeBerry, on Twitter, and he'll give you directions for making a signature quarantine cocktail. Donate now at restaurantworkerscf.org. This is kind of a wonderful segue into the end of the podcast, which is the lightning round, where I just throw out a few questions and you can tell me your thoughts and what's going on um, in your head. I think the first one would be, typically I ask people like, who's killing it on the gram? Like, who do you love to follow? What I would love to know is who is one of your favorite kind of community members that you started following in the very beginning? Jake Cohen, no, uh, which is true. But um, I mean, I think we mentioned, uh, you know, a couple from the very beginning that sort of have been around for a long time. I mean, I'll mention Aton as one only because it's such a nice story. I mean, Aton, I don't know, he's 17 now. Um, we started this six years ago, so we, he was obviously 11. Um, I mean, he was, you know, uh, involved in a, in a show on TV. So it's not like he was, a, a, a you know, didn't have experience, but... Um, you know, he's an example of how, you know, even six years is, is actually a long time. And you, you, you look back and you, you realize, wow, like he was younger than our kids. Um, I mean, there's so many others. I mean, we've been following Jill Fergus, Feed the Swimmers, Aaron Clarkson, Cloudy yeah. Kitchen, Susan Smungin, who Julie met. Actually, yeah. I mean, that's another example of like, you know, Susan Spunkin posted a photo of Quail Hill Farm in Amagansett in the wintertime. And I sent her, I don't even know if they had DM then, might have just commented on her post. And I said, hey, you're out in Amagansett. Did you know that they have a greenhouse? Um, you know, you should join the winter share. And, um, you know, then she said, Oh, you know, I'm I'm back and forth between the city and Amagansett, but let's get together in the summer. I just bought the share for the summer. And, you know, I met Susan in the fields at Quail Hill. Uh, and we went out and dug potatoes in, you know, 90 degrees and humid day in July. And you know, we were on pitchforks. And I think we were both, you know, I mean, I've been farming out there for years now, but she, you know, we, we kind of got to the point where we were like, all right, like we are drenched with sweat. Like, like that was a good first um, encounter. Let's go home and like clean our veggies and get together for dinner sometime soon. So, yeah, I mean. It, Jody Moreno is another example. Yeah. What, what's cooking? Good looking. Uh, her account. Yeah. Um, I saw she posted a picture of the beach or the ocean and um, I'm kind of always on the ocean and I, I recognized the driftwood that was in the picture and. I just commented and said something about he that. She said, is that at Indian Wells Beach in Amagansett? And she wrote back and she was like, 
that's insane. And then I met her the next morning at Jack's Coffee for breakfast. So yeah, I mean, I so a lot of the New York food Instagram accounts obviously were our first connections. But also international. I mean, there were a lot of people. Uh, I mean, um, I forget how to pronounce her name, but uh, ho- uh, homemade is happiness. Yep. Um, there's there's a lot of international accounts that sort of Instagram allowed us to connect with so early on. Um, I mentioned Diadana. Um, All right, it's the yeah. li- lightning round. Let's yeah. let Jake ask yeah, we'll let the next. Uh, yeah, uh, and then the next would be, I think, um, an interesting transition we've made that has been really lovely is kind of the concept of bringing chefs into the mix and supporting restaurants and the idea of chefs outside of the restaurants cooking at home. What have been? What are some of your, like your favorite spots in New York or LA? And Amagansett. Yeah. I mean, we love the Amagansett or the East End chefs. Um, Jason Weiner of Almond Restaurant is a good friend of ours. Um, you know, Joe Realmuto, Nick Smith. and Tony's, um, and, and their entire restaurant group. You know, out there. Um, Jeremy Bloodstein. Yeah. He's at Gurney's. What's cool about the chefs on the East End, they have that same love and appreciation for the land and the sea. So they really lean into, um, you know, the farms and it's kind of reminiscent of um, Alice Waters style menus where every dish will name the names of the farmers. So Or the fishermen. Yeah. If, if Jason at Almond has a dish that's, you know, made with Quail Hill Farm beans, he'll call out Leighton and Scott Chasky. If it has greens from the greenhouse from Amber Waves, he'll call out Katie and Amanda, the farmers at Amber Waves. Um, so we really love those chefs. And Carissa's Bakery out east is sort of a new entry. Um, it was, it, you know, it started. It's a partnership between a woman with a woman that we know quite well, named Carissa, um, who's a baker, um, and she started initially a bakery, but now it's a, a full restaurant that we love. Um, we and ha- then in the city, I mean, we love um, Mike Anthony of Gramercy Tavern. We know him through. Channing Daughters, which is a vineyard um, on the East End. Um, Allison, one of the partners, uh, Mike Anthony, is her brother-in-law. So, I mean, you know, we've gotten to know a lot of the chefs who come out. Michael Chernow. To the East End, um, you know, and have had restaurants out there over the years. And, you know, and so we, we love in the city supporting the same type of restaurants that are supporting local, you know, whether it's Hudson Valley. Um farms or East end farms and fisheries. I mean, Blue Hill, both the Blue Hill and the city and Stone Barns are obviously um, pillars in sort of the food space. Um, I mean, here in LA, we really love Bestia. Um, we love Bavel, which we went there with you, um, or Bavel, I'm not sure how you actually pronounce it. Um, Honey High is another favorite of ours squirrel of course uh jeremy fox's restaurants rustic canyon um tallulah's the kids love their nachos (laughs) love it what are what are your top three feed feed recipes that we've put out in the past few years um okay so i really love um well you're uh, currently actually it for anyone who has not received an email from one of the feed feed members, but one thing that we do is that we put our favorite feed feed recipe in um, our email 
um, signature. And so right now I have your creamy spinach pesto, uh, which has been a big favorite of the communities. Um, you know, it's so easy to make and I've been doing it with just sort of whatever greens I have, especially these yeah. days. Um, and that, you know, that one is, is definitely a favorite. Um, Molly's, uh, bunt, um, cake recipe with the blood orange glaze is delicious. One of my favorites. And, um, and we did just make, uh, Sarah Tain scones, um, a couple weekends ago, the strawberry and sumac scones. Chloe made those. They were delicious. Actually, we doubled the recipe and, um, just kept them in the fridge and would just like bake off, um, you know, a couple scones every morning. Um, I mean, there's so many great recipes, um, that you all, I mean, Sahara's recipe, uh, with the, her pasta with the hazelnuts. I really love the addition of hazelnuts in that pasta. And, um, yes. in general, it's sort of like one of those, like, nuts that you don't always have in your pantry, but when you do buy and you kind of splurge on them, um, you know, they're so versatile and delicious. How about you? What are, what are some of the recipes you're loving? Um, I'm trying to think, I would say, I would also say Molly's bunt. That was truly one of my favorites. Um, I really, really, really love the, um, the uh, chocolate olive oil cookies. Yeah. Yeah. That was and kind of one. And that was a good we one. We had a moment um, on social media. A lot of people are making those. Yeah. Just because they're easy. I mean, I tend to kind of go with for the, the easier recipes. I think they're great. And any of uh, Gurjar's curries are just so, 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 so good. And actually, I just made your uh, brisket for Passover. Uh, for Passover, that was another. I was, I was surprised. I was wondering because obviously with everything going on, I wasn't sure. If, I mean, for my brisket, I bought it like weeks ago and froze it just to be safe. Um, like my brisket hasn't had. Yeah, I did the same thing. I saw a brisket uh, at Erwan one of the last days that I actually went to the grocery store, and I grabbed it like two weeks ago. Um, and, you know, it was vacuum sealed and it said until like April 20th. So I just, it's been in our fridge for weeks. Um, I couldn't find any dried mushrooms, um, but I just used fresh mushrooms. And I did, yeah. I did actually put in about a cup of red wine, which you didn't call for, but because um, I usually always, so I did yes. wine. Well, that's what I do instead of, I use the, typically I do red wine, but in this recipe, I swap the red wine out with the dried mushroom juice. Right. Okay. So since I had no dried mushroom, I used the red wine and then um, fresh mushrooms and tomatoes. It was delicious. Love it. And then the last lightning round question that we ask everyone is the game of fuck, marry, kill. And it's always curated to the guest. So since we have you two, I decided to choose some of the favorite um, garnishes for photos that really make them pop. (laughs) So we have um, microgreens, Flaky sea salt and charred lemon. Oh no! <laughs> we them all. Um, do you want to answer that? I mean, so I, like the the, the 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 shtick is like one you can get rid of, one you yeah. want every day, and one is like just something that like I, in the mood think, you need. I think I'm ready to kill microgreens. Yeah, me too. I I think they're great, but I I 
I think all grains are great and I, it's hard. I, I wouldn't say they differentiate, you know, for me enough, but uh, yeah, that's a hard choice between charred lemon, which is amazing or charred citrus in general versus flaky sea salt. Um, I mean, sea salt, sea salt is sort of a, a, a staple. I mean, I, I would say that's the Mary side. <laughs> um, and then the fuck side, I guess, is the charred lemon just because it's so dramatic and well yeah you get that like nice sear on the outside and actually the one thing that i love about like actually charring lemons besides just how they look in photos or any charred citrus to is, eat them or? is the, how they squeeze so nicely right like after you've seared them and then you like want to i don't know say maybe you have like a salmon or something and then you want to i i do a lot of charred citrus obviously because we're here on the west coast and the citrus is amazing um but they you know the juices just kind of really run right out of that charred citrus so yeah i guess we'll go with fuck charred (laughs) perfect well on that note thank you so much this has been such a wonderful tie-in to finish off season one um it's been a, a great combo and looking forward to many more down the line Yeah, thanks so much. You've done such a great job of curating amazing guests coming on the show and the conversations have been awesome. Um, I look forward to getting my little alert every week when the new um, episode drops. So I'm excited for this one and for season two. And so nice to be partnering with Heritage Radio Network on these. I know that's me, especially because it's, it's been my life easy since it's a literally two block walk from the office every, every time we record, which is lovely. Um, and even now, now it's great because we can do it from the comfort of my couch. Yep. Exactly. Um, All right, Jake, well, hopefully we'll get to see you in real life sometime soon. Yes. Hopefully, hopefully. Thanks so much for listening. To learn more about the food and drink discovery platform that is The Feed Feed, head to thefeedfeed.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Feed Feed. And if you have a tip on who the next social media culinary star will be, send us a DM. We will see you next season. The Feed Feed is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.